My name is Dr. Robert Neff, and I am a gynecologic oncologist with TriHealth Cancer Institute in Cincinnati, Ohio. On behalf of my colleagues from the SGO Education Committee's Clinical Trials Subcommittee, I would like to welcome you to another in our podcast series focusing on clinical trial management. As the field of gynecologic oncology continues to grow, more of the care of women with gynecologic cancer is happening in centers outside of academia. Understanding this fact, growing the reach of clinical trial availability is essential to improving overall care for these women. Today, we're going to focus on clinical trial management from the community oncology perspective. Specifically, our hope is that listeners come away with a better understanding of how to build clinical trial teams, the resources available, and how to increase portfolios. With that, I would like to introduce our fantastic panel to help lead this discussion. First up is Dr. Brad Monk, who is a professor of gynecologic oncology with the University of Arizona and Creighton University School of Medicine. He's also the vice president of GOG Foundation and co-director of GOG Partners. Brad, thanks for joining. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you. Next is Dr. Mark Shaheen, who is the director of gynecologic oncology from Jefferson Health Abington Hospital in Philadelphia. Thanks for joining, Mark. Thank you, Bob. And last but certainly not least is Ashley Douglas, who is a clinical research nurse and project manager within the clinical trials office at Jefferson Health. Ashley, thanks for joining. Thank you so much. So let's try and get right into it. You know, the way I kind of wanted to at least start the framework was as a new GYN oncologist, you know, out of fellowship with a vague understanding of how clinical trials work and starting a career within a community hospital institution, which has maybe not been in, as involved with gynecologic oncology cancer research in the past. Ashley, when you hear of a scenario like this, you know, from an administrative side, what are some of the necessary pieces that you have found in your career that have been essential for successful clinical research? When I think about running clinical trials, I think about the team that goes into it. And there's different aspects of the team. But from my perspective, I'm looking at the team that's working with the patients that are patient facing and that are taking the data and inputting that into the system as well as working on regulatory aspects with the IRB. And mostly, I think what you need for a good team in research is somebody that's really flexible because every day is different. Every clinical trial is different. What we were doing six months ago is different than what we're doing right now. Also, speaking of patient-facing coordinators is somebody that is really compassionate and wants to educate patients because I think the patients look to the coordinators for their guidance and trust. They want to learn more about research. And so our patient-facing coordinators are the ones that are doing a lot of educating with the patients. I think that's fantastic. So, you know, I think that as some of us who have been involved in the hiring process for this, you know, what what do you think makes a successful candidate for someone to be on a clinical research staff position? They have to be definitely ready to learn and have a lot of autonomy because there's so much that there's so many factors that go into a trial. There's so many moving parts. So you have your team that work really closely trial, but then you have to think about the team that extends out beyond the, the core research group, meaning we have radiologists that we need to be involved with trials. We need pathologists. We need people from the lab. So you have your core team that you're looking for, but then you also need to have some other members of the research team that are dedicated and want to work on these trials as well. Dr. Shaheen, I'd like to kind of pick up on your experience. What are some of the differences between your early career and opening trials compared to nowadays 
in terms of an opening clinical trials and, and what have you seen change over this time period? Thank you, Bob. I have the distinct advantage of having started my career in a community hospital with a large gynecologic oncology service that was a main member in the uh, former gynecologic oncology group. And then, about roughly 10 years ago, we transitioned into an NCI-designated cancer center, so a much larger organization, and then we became eventually a LAPS uh, organization, which is a large academic participating site. To be honest with you, there are advantages and disadvantages both, but in the early part of your career, you want to hit essentially trials that bring you success and you want to be able to enroll easily. I can't emphasize that it's really important to know what are the patients that you have seen in your practice. If I have a practice where I'm not seeing a lot of cervical cancer patients, opening the recurrent cervical cancer trial, it doesn't make any sense. So you need to kind of make an assessment, small, start small, have that team in place, just as Ashley alluded to, and begin, you know, one or two and three maybe trials in the adult I think working with a GOD partners type organization would be phenomenal because a lot of the elements are there. They will help you through this process. Sometimes, you know, entering into a large NCPN trial, which is more like NRG or quad, they're a little bit harder. And you have to, um, your institution has to meet more stricter criteria and so forth. So in terms of what are my, my goals then and what is now, my initial goals were basically start small, build on success. Today, because I'm part of a larger enterprise that covers you know, four different counties and two different states, I can kind of decide to open maybe large, larger number of trials, but also be selective about the specific institutions that we open the trial. So where we have you know, more cervical cancer, we'll open those trials there, and then within the institution, I can essentially send the patients to various sites. If I have phase one trials at one center, that way I can maybe send my phase one patients over there to a partner of mine who's like 20 miles down the road. And then if I have a center with a large ovarian cancer population, maybe I want to focus on that. And that doesn't mean I don't open multiple trials in the same site. It's just you have to decide what are what is what is going to be the win. The worst thing that you can do is open trials and then not actually agree on one of the issues that we now face being part of an NCI designated cancer center is that we really have minimum requirements that we have to meet. When we don't enroll a patient and a trial has been sitting there for six months and a year, maybe just because we don't have the right patient, they come back to us and they want to actually close it and they want explanations of why do we have this open. Remember that when you have a trial open, your regulatory office is constantly working, generating you know, documents that they have to report back. And so if you don't have any patients on it, there's no revenue coming out or coming in, but you are putting out a lot of efforts for all the regulatory documents. That's a lose-lose situation. So you want to build on success, and I'm happy to explain further on that. I think that is a really key point that I think is important for the listeners is starting small, building on your success rather than trying to do too much too soon. If you could, just for a second, talk a little bit about engaging healthcare administrators, like if you've had to do that at all during your career to get research goals, specifically 
you know, maybe talking about benefits to the system, things like that? Absolutely. So in my early years at uh, Addington Memorial Hospital, I was fortunate to partner with Susan Nolte, who for many years actually ran the nursing committee in gynecologic oncology group. And we would go to the administration of the hospital. For them, research really was not a priority. But we demonstrated to them that research actually can be financially very lucrative to a community hospital. So, number one, it actually attracted patients to come to our center who would have normally not been to us. Number two, when those patients came in, if, we, if our team was efficient and lean, we were able to demonstrate a positive turn of investment um, to the organization. One of the benefit of it was that we had a small team. You know, we didn't have large committees and so forth, and we were able to do it very efficiently. So if we saw a concept that came through and a trial that was uh, available, even about, you know, two months or so, we were able to actually have it open on our site and get it rolling. We did have very good contacts with uh, radiology, pathology, laboratory, and that allowed us to be that nimble, efficient community hospital. And it still is the same uh, today. When you roll into a larger organization, and the academic centers, like NCI designated cancer center, they already know that this is a distinguishing factor. So you don't have to convince your administration that this is something you need to do because they actually expect it from you. And there you just have to work within the system. They put a lot of, NCI essentially has a lot of uh, requirements. They want you to have a multidisciplinary group to really evaluate whether these trials are appropriate or, or scientifically. Then they want you to have a protocol facilitation committee where you actually have the right people to do that study. You know, if the study requires a particular type of MRI that I don't do at my center, I shouldn't be opening that file. So we have an opportunity for all of the various members to comment about the feasibility of the trial. I remember distinctly where we had, you know, some biologic agents we didn't have it, the right biological team at our institutions, and we didn't open those trials. Finally, then there's a protocol review committee that then looks at everything and do the approval, and they are the ones who actually scrutinize you every few months to see whether you've approved the appropriate patients on it. I can tell you that again, and maybe Dr. Monk can further elaborate on this, we uh, should not be prohibited in terms of opening these trials worrying about the cost, because actually today, really, the design of all of these trials is that the institutions are properly compensated for the efforts they put in there. And this is a big shout out to the way GOD partners have negotiated with various pharma and industry to ensure that these trials are actually profitable for the research team that conducts I think that's a really interesting point, and I think we're going to touch on that a little bit more later in terms of cost structure and things like that. But Dr. Monk, I do want to get to you now, too. Your institution, you and your career have been very successful in running clinical trials, and you kind of want to bring up the same question to start with in terms of where you started early in your career and kind of how you have gotten to this point at your institution. Thank you. So I am in a private practice like you. And we are not part of an NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center. So this National Clinical Trials Network, this NC10, we do not participate in because it's not financially viable. I sort of wish I was back at the NCI. That's where I started. and But I'm in a private practice. And so 
we only run pharma-sponsored trials. And so I've sort of evolved my career and sort of as, as a co-founder of the, the GOG Partners Organization and now the co-director, I try to bring to both institutions, NCI cancer centers, as well as sort of more community-focused centers. I don't use non-academic because I consider myself academic. I just work within the community. But I try to bring you guys studies. And because if you don't have a study, you can't do it. And so you have patients and you have investigators and now you have studies. And I like what was said about the institutional support. That's where the rubber hits the pavement. I also liked what Ashley said, that the patient-facing clinical trial people, I call them clinical trial coordinators, CRCs, some call them clinical uh, research associates. But behind the scenes, there are at least five other components. And Ashley, you mentioned one of them, the, the clinical component with infusion nurses and so on. But I want to do a shout out to pharmacy. Someone has to receive the investigational product. Someone has to sign the contract financing. Someone has to process the regulatory documents, okay, regulatory. And then in my organization, I have data coordinators who sit and handle the electronic data capture. So CRCs, regulatory uh, data, uh, research data coordinators, regulatory finance, pharmacy, and clinical. You've got to have those six components. And so that's a lot. I can't hire six people as I start my own organization. Well, you can have your multitasking, which again, Ashley, you're good at, but that's how you build a program, okay? Patient, investigator, clinical trial that the GOG brings you, and then the institutional support that Mark uh, sort of nicely outlined how you talk to the institution. And over time, you're going to need all six components. As you just brought up, uh, Brad, about multitasking is really important. In our early days, Ashley was essentially my nurse navigator, my office nurse, and my research. Right. And so, um, you know, there was, she was wearing different hats throughout the day, and she can admit that. Um, when we became a larger entity and we were able to hire, then we started dividing up the tasks, really devoting uh, the individuals to just one of them. But for many of us in the community hospital, our staff in the office is going to wear multiple I sit in the same desk. I've had three employers because the hospital systems treat us as uh, chess pieces, pawns, if you will. And just in a short period of time, seven months, I've hired three CRCs, two data coordinators, two regulatory, one finance, one pharmacy, and then the clinical sort of had to educate. So you can build these programs very quickly in less than a year if if you sort of uh, understand it. And I like what you said, Mark, about financial viability. We're already making a profit. So they had to sort of invest in the infrastructure. And we've enrolled about 20 patients in seven months, but they continue every time we make a metric. 20 maybe isn't that many in my mind. That's a lot. So, so you can do it. You have to have a culture. So I have wonderful, wonderful partners, Mike Janicek, Ivor Benjamin, Lindsay Wilmont, Heather Dalton, and others, Arvin Backrew. So you have to have partners that want to do it with you. And quite frankly, I think you have to reimburse your partners for their time. Written into the study is money to pay your partners, the physicians, to do the work. It's not incentive, it's payment for work, just like you get paid in the EM service uh, to see a patient in the office or do a surgery. So this sort of financial process uh, where people, not not only the, the institution, but also the provider gets reimbursed for their value of the time to do clinical trials. Bob, I want to just go back to what Brad was mentioning. 
has to be in the culture. Yes. So if you're in a group where you walk around and you think that you know better what's best for your patient, and you're not going to commit to the clinical trial, you'll never have a successful cure. When we sit and discuss every patient, whether it's primary diagnosis or recurrent, the first question that the group is taught to ask is, do we have a trial open? Mm-hmm. If you don't do that, you begin to miss one after another. So it's actually like within my group, we have had this culture where we're prohibited from making the final decision at the time of the visit to the patient. We do a lot of preparation before those visits as the patients roll in. And and if I don't know what's available, or let's say my team is out, I tell the patient, no, I have like four options. But before I commit to one, I'd like to consult my clinical research team before I make a decision for you because I may have something new and exciting that wasn't available a year or two ago. The patients get enthusiastic. The team knows this is the culture. And we do this every day. And through that practice, it makes us better, honestly. You have to be in constant communication with your clinical research coordinator that continues to screen patients for you. When we get new people on the team, they'll come up to me and say, you know, what's the best way to treat this patient? And every time, the first thing I say is, are they eligible for a clinical trial? So now after they've been there for a couple of months, when they show up, they say, oh, she's not eligible for a clinical trial. And then I say, well, what does the NCCN guidelines say? So now they come and they say, she's not eligible for clinical trials, rare tumors, not descriptive. It's just, it's so fun to do that. And then when we did on the 15th of November, when we got Mervituxin, Absorbentancin approved, we've been doing that. And now all of a sudden we're an expert in the community and they're already coming to us for that antibody drug conjugate. So it's infectious. And it, most importantly is it keeps us all engaged and prevents burnout. I like to do hysterectomies, but it's the science, it's the investigation, it's the innovation. It's I get Mark Shaheen, my buddy, and now Bob, you. I like, I'm a social guy. So it creates a community and, and your patients. Just what you said, Mark, I was pretty. The patient has hope and it's just wonderful. I think that really the take home messages from hearing you guys talk today is, you know, that the culture has to be number one priority. And I've even seen that early on in my career. So I think that's really outstanding to see that as something that has been such a major focus for you both in your career. I want to get back to Ashley as we've kind of talked about this team building and Dr. Monk, you mentioned these six important aspects. So as a minimum, Ashley, if you were trying to open one to five trials in terms of team members to have in place, what, what do you think if we were to expect some of the team members to kind of serve a couple roles? It's always hard to talk about trials in numbers because Dr. Monk was saying some people think enrolling 20 patients is not much, but depending on the complexity of the trial, 20 (laughs) patients really could be a lot of patients. The same with having five trials open. You could have five trials on, but you need two coordinators to manage it because depending on how many patients you enroll and how complex the trial is. But Ultimately, I think, you know, if you have about five trials open, I think you probably need about three to four staff members to get dedicated to the trial to manage the trial and then also to work with the patients with coordination. Possibly that same patient could enter the data. And then you also need somebody that's doing regulatory work. So I would say, depending on, you know, the complexity of the trial, three to four um, staff members. 
Well, actually, let's break that down. You're so smart. So you can have someone be the clinical research coordinator in data. And if you have the central IRB, now all of a sudden you got three of the six and you only got one person. Okay. And then the clinical, we can sort of work with the pathologist and work with the investigator. Now you got four, one person. So the two components, which you're not good at, even you, Ashley, I bet, finance. So you need to have someone to negotiate the contract and the legal language. And you can be good at this, Ashley, but you're probably not good at pharmacy. So you need someone to receive the medication, do the accountability log, mix the drug, and distribute it to the infusion center. They may not have research pharmacies, but they do have someone that counts the numbers. So you, you need sort of that CRC data, central IRB that makes the efficiency. And then you need a pharmacy person, okay, and you need a finance person. That's sort of at a bare minimum. Now, as I said, I have three CRCs. And I have, you have to build a redundant organization because if you have one person that, let's say, does data and that person is out, then the whole place goes to somewhere that's not good. So I build a redundant organization and I may not have enough patients for three CRCs, but if one leaves, then I can survive with two while I get the third one in place. So it has to be a sustainable program. It's really important to also tap into your organization because you may just, as a new practicing genome oncologist, you may not be aware that your hospital may be a part of a healthcare system. Yeah. Somewhere in that healthcare system, there may be a research finance guy that's you know, working on this stuff and they may be remote and they can do all that for you, but yeah. you just have to do a little legwork investigating, like where are they located and how can it happen to their uh, expertise. And a research pharmacist, to your point. Mm -hmm. I think those are all really great points. You know, I even had thought about asking this because, I mean, I think turnover is such a huge thing everywhere nowadays that needing to have that kind of backup system redundancy built in is so important, I think, for the trial team so that you don't get caught flat-footed with trials open and nobody to help manage them, especially if you have patients that are coming up to be able to enroll on. So I think that's a really great point that you guys brought up. You can't, I don't think you can legally sign a non-compete. Okay, I don't think you can do that. But what we do is we say, look, if, if you're with the organization for a period of time, you'll get a, a bonus. So in your one, two, every year. So there, there's a sense of loyalty that I'm going to hang in there because in a year I'm going to get that 15% bonus. And, and that's really been important for our retention. Sorry to interrupt. Hold on, that's fine. I think that we've brought up a lot of really great points here today. And I think, you know, Dr. Monk, I've really appreciated your insight in terms of from a national standpoint. But one question I think that may still come up as your program is growing is this idea of becoming a GOG Foundation site. Mm -hmm. I know that's something that I had, you know, initially thought of. Is that something that is still desirable as an institution? And can you talk a little bit about why or why not? It's a simple process. And again, GOG Partners, which is not energy, this is the pharma-sponsored component run by Coleman and myself, co-directed by Herzog and Moore and others. Our site coordinator administrator is Katie Campbell. And so it's a one-page application, we just one of who you are. And then what happens is you sort of are on the lookout for trials that are opening. You can't join a study that's ongoing. You join them in the beginning. And what would happen is you would sign a confidentiality agreement. And just what you said, Mark, we would send you a feasibility survey. Do you have all the necessary components? And then ultimately, if you get through, and they would say, how many patients can you enroll? They don't want you to be 
that part of the study might just be deliver. And then you have a pre-site qualification visit where they sort of interview you. And then you have a site initiation visit when you're ready to roll. CDA, feasibility, PSV, pre-site qualification visit, SIV, site initiation visit, and activation. So those studies, sort of my passion to continue to in the team to bring you these studies on an ongoing basis in all three of our tumor types, cervical endometrial and tubo ovarian. And ultimately, the person who administrates our sites is named Katie Campbell, and she has a, a large staff that can interact with you and your people. That's great. Ashley, just as kind of a little bit of a wrap up, you know, from an administrative side, what do you want the takeaway to be from someone listening to this podcast today, hoping to increase trials at their site? I think that there's so many aspects of it, the trial when you're thinking about opening it that you just want to have in your mind. Even from a feasibility standpoint, you know, you want to make sure that you have centrifuges if needed, refrigerator or freezer space if needed, the shipping materials, training for staff members to ship any sort of samples. There's temperature controls that are needed. There's document storage. So there's so many aspects of it. But like we've been saying, some of this might already be in place. So you just need to look what's available, what you can use that already be there at your institute to really try to make it successful. Thank you so much for that. And Dr. Shaheen is somebody that would be coming up as a budding local primary investigator. What are your pieces of advice for that person? So start small. If GOG sees that you have uh, enrolled five patients successfully, you have good data that you have reported, you don't have a lot of delinquencies, they're going to be more enthusiastic to come to you next time around a similar study comes up for that same population. So you build on that success. Another thing that I thought it was worth emphasizing is when you have these trials open, the investigators locally need to really adhere to the protocol. And I can't tell you how important it is. Somebody's going to come to you and say, hey, uh, so-and-so AMC is 1,400. Can I just go ahead and give her a therapy? My answer is, what does the protocol say? Because if the protocol stipulates 1,500, you can't treat that patient. You have to wait till it's 1,500. And this can be very frustrating for some of the practitioners out there who really adhere. So this is what I was saying earlier. There's a constant communication between myself, the clinical research team, and you have to be available to them 24-7, literally. And uh, if your patient is admitted to the hospital, first thing I do, I let Ashley know that hey, my patient on this trial was admitted because she has to file paperwork on that trial. So this becomes a constant dialogue every day, and you really need to uh, trust your team, and the team needs to trust you that you're leading them in the right direction. So those are the elements, I think, that really makes you successful in this journey. And thank you for that. And Dr. Monk, you know, kind of a similar question. If, as an individual who wants to get more involved and put themselves out there, how do they become engaged more in this process? It's for function through relationships. We're here to help uh, whoever wants to engage us. I really like the two comments that Dr. Shaheen and Mark just said, build it brick by brick. It, it takes time. And I like what Ashley said is details matter. So if you would take those sort of two concepts, brick by brick, it's a process. And it's the journey. It's not the destination that matters. And details matter and stay dialed in and stay on schedule and you'll, you'll be successful. I want to say the half of my collaborators on the clinical trial subcommittee, this, this discussion was really outstanding. And just want to thank you very much, all of you, for the conversation today. And 
I really hope that this continues to help propel forward the growth of clinical trials nationwide, because I agree. I mean, I think some of these major points that we brought up about preventing burnout, building this culture, I think that's, I think those are really interesting pieces that people who are in the community can maybe use as motivation to bring this to their institution. So I just want to say thank you to all of you for joining us today and just appreciate your efforts. We're doing all of this for our patients. We yes. want better, better outcomes for our patients every day. Thank you for inviting us. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.